All right. Good morning. Uh, my name is Dwayne, and welcome to Directional Bible Ministries. This is a teaching ministry that is called to encourage, disciple, and challenge the people of God. Uh, today is um, November the 8th, and we are still continuing our study through the book of Acts. Uh, we are we find ourselves in Acts chapter number 27 today, and today we're going to attempt to cover the entire chapter, verses 1 through 44. So, it's been a good ride making our way through the book of Acts, uh, but there's uh, still two more chapters to go. So, uh, let's go ahead and open up our notes, our studies, our Bibles, and uh, let's start in... Um, uh, chapter number 27, verse number 1, and of course this is where Paul is sailing to Rome. Um, Paul is sailing to Rome here. Uh, let me check some volume settings here. Yeah, everything's still looking good. All right then. Uh, you guys let me know if something goes amiss, but it looks like I've got uh, everything, every box checked here. So, uh, Paul is sailing to Rome, uh, so uh, let's go ahead and look in Acts chapter number 27. Uh, verse number 1. And when it was determined that we should sell into Italy, they delivered Paul and certain other prisoners into one named Julius, a centurion of Augustus's band. Uh, remember the we here that Luke is, is indicates that Luke is writing this, that Luke is with him, Luke attended, was a part of this, um, uh, the fact that Paul is allowed to travel with his friends speaks to the amount of freedom that he had, even though he was still technically under arrest, but apparently he was not deemed to be a flight risk, obviously. Uh, maybe in some ways Agrippa and Festus wanted him to be to, to flee, <laughs> because as you'll remember, uh, the whole point of the going back and forth when Festus brought him to Agrippa was, I find no I find no fault in this guy. Uh, I have nothing to write to Caesar. Uh, so if you could uh, interview him yourself, and maybe we can put our heads together and come up with something to write to Caesar. And, of course, you know, in the end, Agrippa agreed with uh, Festus, who agreed with Felix that there was nothing that this guy has done uh, that's worthy of him being in bonds, let alone appealing it. Uh, to Caesar. So, and again, the reason they let it go was political expediency. Uh, just get rid of him, get him out of Jerusalem. We got enough problems with this. Uh, so, you know, so here we see, see Paul. And of course, uh, the fact that Luke is writing this, uh, many people see, like I said, Luke and Acts is basically part one and part two, almost a single volume, if you will. Um, of course, Luke writes up to uh, the crucifixion, um, and then, of course, the resurrection, and then Acts flows into what happened after the resurrection, you know, that 40-day seminar that Jesus had with the, uh, the apostles. I think that 40-day seminar, as I've uh, said in time past, was very important because I think that's when Jesus filled in the blanks. What was going on? We had hoped that this one would be the, you know, the deliverer, the savior of Israel. Uh, apparently, the apostles had lost all hope, and we know that when Jesus walked upon this earth, um, the apostles were clueless. 
I mean, they were at any moment expecting the kingdom to appear. Can I sit on your right hand? Can I sit on your left hand? And then all those hopes were dashed when Christ was crucified. So after the resurrection, Christ spent 40 days with those guys, explaining to them that he must have died. He had to have died. You know, in Hebrews, talks about he had to have died to forgive the transgressions that were committed under the first testament, the first covenant, um, because he couldn't bring in the new covenant until the old covenant had been satisfied, um, and that he was, with his resurrection, wanting to bring in the second covenant, or the new covenant. And we know that did not happen. We, do not, we are not covenant people. We do not live under the covenant. The covenant is for the Jews. The only way you can get the body of Christ living under the covenant is if you make the body of Christ Israel. And uh, we don't do that. <clears throat> I did it for years. I'm not doing it anymore. Now, notice in verse number two, and entering into the ship and at Andramitian, uh, we launched and meaning to sail by the coast of Asia, one Aristarchus, a Macedonian of Thessalonica, being with us. Uh, Aristarchus was first introduced to us back in chapter number 19 and verse number 29 when he and Gaius, um, you remember they were caught up in the riot that took place at Ephesus. Um, and the whole city was filled with confusion and having caught Gaius and Aristarchus, men of Macedonia, Paul's companions. So apparently Aristarchus is still with him, still traveling uh, with him. And the next day we touched in Sidon, and Julius courteously entreated Paul and gave him liberty to go unto his friends and refresh himself. Again, it's obvious that Paul's, quote, arrest was a pretty loose one. Um, again, they had nothing to condemn Paul for. Um, and remember, sometimes I got to back up. I, I'm, a, I'm the type of student. I'm the type of teacher that repetition is how we learn. Uh, until it almost becomes rote memory. Um, Paul was first accused by the Jews, you'll remember, of teaching against the Mosaic law, circumcision, and the customs. However, when, when they sought to get him prosecuted under Roman law, they knew that that wouldn't hold water. The Romans could have cared less about that, uh, because unless he had broken some Roman law, uh, it was just Jewish superstition. That's when they hired Tertullius to come in and accuse him of being a pestilent fellow and a seditionist, you know, because those were things that um, the Roman authorities uh, might uh, take up against Paul. But they failed on both counts, and Felix saw through it, uh, Festus saw through it, and Agrippa saw through it. Uh, but Nevertheless, so he's really, there's no charges officially that we can see here because we, and you know, again, I'm, we, we try to read between the lines. I, you know, it doesn't, you know, the whole point of Festus bringing him to Agrippa was to come up with something to accuse him of. And we have no indication as of the final lines of the words of Agrippa, this man might have been set free if he hadn't appealed to Caesar. So I don't know what they wrote with him, wrote. <laughs> to send along with him as accusations. But obviously it wasn't wasn't too harsh. I mean, he was basically given freedom to walk around, refresh himself, hang out with his friends, take his buddies with him. Uh, then verse number four, And when we had launched from thence, we sailed under Cyprus because the winds were contrary. 
And when we had sailed over the Sea of Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra, a city of Lycia. And there the centurion found a ship of Alexander sailing to Italy, and he put us therein. And when we had sailed slowly many days, and scarce were come against Nidus, the wind not suffering us, we sailed under Crete over against Salome. So here we see Paul, I mean, uh, Luke is definitely an attention-to-detail type guy. I mean, he is the detail guy. He's telling us stuff that really, you know, unless... uh, Unless we we receive some further revelation, <laughs> just you know, doesn't have a lot to do with the story. Other than he is just a detailed person, and we talked about how Luke is the largest of the Gospels. He was a physician. Um, he was meticulous, apparently. So he he finds it very important to um, put in the details. Uh, and he's saying here, you know, where they went. Where they sailed, the wind was not there. In other words, the sails, these were sailboats, so uh, the wind wasn't blowing. So when it says, and we sailed slowly many days, um, the wind not suffering us. So we sailed under Crete against Salome and hardly passing it, came to a place that is called the Fair Havens, nigh where into the city of Lassia. Now, when much time was spent and when sailing was now dangerous because the fast was now already passed, Paul admonished them, comma. So notice the fast that Luke is referring to is the Day of Atonement, which would mean that this was after, uh, or this was in the month of Tisri, uh, which would have been on our calendar um, part of sep- the last part of September, the first part of October. Um, and we see this in Leviticus 23, 7, and also on the 10th day of this seventh month, there shall be a day of atonement, and it shall be a holy convocation unto you, and ye shall afflict your souls, and offer an offering made by fire unto the Lord. So we know that this is after the 10th of Tisri, which was the um, day of atonement. So again, he gives us some some serious details here. <clears throat> Barnes, <clears throat> whom I really enjoy historically, he said this is the time of the autumnal equinox. Uh, and when the navigation of the Mediterranean was esteemed to be particularly dangerous when the storms which usually occurred about that time, the ancients regarded this as the dangerous time to navigate the Mediterranean. So historically, we know the time frame that Paul is talking about, or Luke is describing here. Uh, And then in verse number 10, And said unto them, Sirs, I perceive that this voyage will be with hurt and much damage, not only of the laden and ship, but also of our lives. So so Paul says, you know, I'm pretty perceptive here, and uh, I think we're going to have a dangerous voyage. Uh, We may actually um, lose our cargo. We may even lose the ship, and we might possibly even lose our lives. Now, <clears throat> now, Paul is saying this. Um, I, don't, I don't know if he's speaking out of a natural perception of what was going on around him or if it was something supernatural. But I do know when we get down into a couple of verse, you know, uh, he's having a conference with an angel. <laughs> so, <laughs> so again, whether this be natural or supernatural observation or perception on Paul's part, we 
We simply don't know. But he says in verse number 11, nevertheless, the centurion believed the master and the owner of the ship. In other words, they called a meeting, and they decided to overrule uh, any concerns that Paul might have had. Now, when I pastored a congregationally ran church, <laughs> I used to tell them about this vote that took place. <laughs> um, I, I'm kind of... Uh, I think that, uh, you know, I've pastored churches that are congregational um, before, and I've pastored churches that were really strong, or been on staff at least, at churches that were extremely, strongly pastorally led, that mosaic model of leadership. I think a healthy combination of both uh, is a good thing. I you know, I don't think the church should necessarily be called together to overrule the pastor. If they did, as the pastor, I'd probably leave. Um, but I think that, you know, at my, at my last church, uh, what we did is I actually established a two governing bodies, if you will. I had a board <clears throat> of elders, and I had an advisory board. Uh, and the advisory board was made up of church leaders, uh, church, not ordained leaders, but committee leaders, committee team leaders, uh, project leaders, you know, in the church, those that were involved in the ministry, and then they were accountable to the elders that were on the board, and that was all divvied out. And again, I mean, we're, we're walking down a path when we talk about church leadership that, you know, the Bible doesn't speak too strongly one way or the other, uh, I think that's what I think every church is different, you know, but I would actually listen to the advisory board. I mean, if sis, if Sister Mabel led the kitchen committee, I wanted to hear what Sister Mabel had to say in regards to the kitchen committee, you know, and and then ultimately, you know, the 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 board, the board of elders would make a decision on that. And then once a year, I mean, we did have what we called family meetings. Uh, but again, they were not places to vote. Uh, they were just places to discuss things. You know, what's going on in the body? Here's some updates. Here's some, some concerns. You know, what do you think of this? You know, just to get the lay of the land and figure out where they're coming from. So I think there's a healthy, uh, there's a healthy uh, common ground there in regards to church leadership. Uh, but anyway, I would always use this as an example of how congregational polity doesn't always work, <laughs> you know. <laughs> you know, and you really, I mean, the problem with voting in church, just like voting in elections, uh, you have winners and you have losers. Um, you know, I'm not. I'm not sure the the church needs to go through that. Uh, at least not every month on a Wednesday night, you know what I'm saying? Uh, you're picking up a little bit of my Baptist background right now. Uh, and again, people rule based upon emotions. People vote based upon emotions. If we've ever figured that one out, we've figured it out in this election cycle. People vote on their perception of reality, uh, which is not always correct. They also vote in their self-interest, you know, uh, when I was principal of a school, uh, I refused to have a PTO. 
and I was advised by many, um, don't have PTOs because parents will always vote in favor of what is in the best interest of their child, not what's in the best interest of the school. And that is true. That doesn't mean you don't meet with the parents, but you you don't make them a legislative body. <laughs> so anyway, uh, verse number 12. And because the haven was not commodious, the word commodious uh, literally means just suitable. I love the uh, e-sword uh, because uh, it's got this little KJB, KJV plus function on it. And you can see here the word commodious um, literally means not well set, inconvenient. In other words, it just wasn't suitable uh, for them to, to winter in. Uh, the more part advised to depart thence also, if by any means they might attain to Phoenice, and there to winter, which is a haven of Crete, and lieth toward the southwest and northwest. Again, this is Luke. And when the south wind blew softly, so whew, they, they finally felt some breezes blowing here, uh, supposing that they had attained their purpose. In other words, hey, we're, we might be able to make it to Phoenice. Loosing thence, they sailed close to Crete. So again, Luke, filling in the details as any good config, uh, physician would do. Um, many, like I said, see, see Acts as just part two of Luke's gospel. And we talked about how Matthew, Mark, and Luke are known as the synoptics. Uh, and that word synoptic means seeing together. Um, they're almost identical. Um, you know, they have this... Uh, Jesus uh, being born, uh, Jesus going north into Capernaum, and then Jesus finally turning around, starting to make his way back to Jerusalem uh, for his trial and crucifixion. So Matthew, Mark, and Luke, just they follow that. John breaks the mold. Uh, John completely breaks the mold there. But Luke is one of the synoptics, but he is the one that paid a lot more attention to detail. Uh, than the others did. Uh, let's see. And Matthew, uh, let's see, Matthew, uh, yeah, see, Matthew's got 28 chapters. Mark has 16 chapters. Luke, you know, I might, I might stand corrected here. <laughs> I do stand corrected. Matthew is the largest gospel. Man, heresy alert here. Um, Luke has 24. Uh, but I guess what I want to say is Luke had a lot more attention to detail. So Luke's is the longest. Why don't we change that to Luke's is the most detailed. There we go. Um, so we can just end that at that so that I don't publish any more heresy. <laughs> I'm glad I fact-checked myself live. So there you go. And then look at verse 14. But not long after that, there arose against, a, against it a tempestuous wind called Euroclidon. Um, the word tempestuous is where we get the word uh, typhoon. Uh, typhoonikos. Uh, it's where we get the word typhoon today. And again, I've always... My understanding is that typhoons occur over water hurricanes occur over land. They're all about wind 
currents, but a typhoon is over water, hurricane is over land. Um, I see a lot of interpreters uh, talking about hurricanes, Bible teachers, but they're at sea, so that's a typhoon. Uh, but um, the word Euroclidon simply means that it came from the east. Uh, if you look at the word Euroclidon, the east wind, a storm from the east. You know, so that is where uh, we call today a northeaster. Though in Texas they always say a nor'easter, a norster, a nor. Um, my brother Mac not be able to correct me on that, but uh, uh, it's northeaster. Uh, I think we call it nor'easter. They call it a nor'easter in Texas. Um, but um, anyway, your Clydon means it's coming from the east. Uh, Barnes, again, one of my favorite uh, commentators. Interpreters have been much perplexed about the meaning of the word, and of course he's speaking of the word uh, tempestuous, um, or Euroclidon is what he's talking about, which occurs nowhere else in the New Testament. The most probable supposition is that it denotes a wind not blowing steadily from any quarter, but a hurricane. I would think it would be more of a typhoon, or wind veering about to different quarters. Such hurricanes are known to abound in the Mediterranean and are now called Levanters or Levanters, deriving their name from the, the, the blowing chiefly in the Levant or the eastern part of the Mediterranean. So, then notice in verse 15, and when the ship was caught and could not bear up into the wind, we let her drive. Um, and of course, the term we let her drive just literally means we, we let go of the wheel. Uh, again, <laughs> you know, that's the old song we sing to Jay, Jesus take the wheel. Well, apparently the first time he took the wheel was here in chapter number 27 of the book of Acts. <laughs> because <laughs> they let go of it and they let her drive. In other words, they couldn't fight it. The rudders were simply uh, not responding. Uh, it was, at that point, useless. And then also I did some study back then when when they let it drive, they would literally raise the rudders up out of the water. In other words, they had the ability just to fold them up and uh, just let the ship be taken. Uh, and then running under a certain island that is called Clauda, or Clauda, Clauda, we had much work to come by the boat. Now, that's referring to the lifeboat. They're trying to get the lifeboat. They're, they're seeing a need for the lifeboat. Uh, later, we'll find that the lifeboat miraculously, uh, they apparently didn't use it, or at least it's not mentioned that they used it because they ended up slamming onto a shore, um, you know, and they were told to jump and start swimming. But at this point, they're, they're trying to find the lifeboat, and they're having a lot to, to save it, and which, we, which when they had taken it up, they used helps undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into the quicksands, take straight sail, and so were driven. Scott, the Gospel of Luke has 2,297 more words than Matthew. All right, man. But I guess chapter-wise, it's not the longest, but it has more words. So, wow. Might have to change that. Luke is more detailed, 
Luke's has more words and is the most detailed. And is the most detailed. There you go. Fact checks going on, man. Thank you, sir. Appreciate that. <laughs> um, all right, then. Then notice it says, uh, and they they and when they had taken up, in other words, when they had got the boat, the lifeboat up, they used helps undergirding the ship, fearing lest they should fall into quicksand, strike sail, and so were driven. So they let the ship drive. Um, another navigational term he uses here is the word undergirding. When they had undergirded the ship, uh, that word undergirding there um, actually speaks of to frap. And to frap a vessel was to pass cables across the keel, the sides, and the deck. In other words, they were using it to hold the thing together so that the, the boards would not just splinter and fly apart. So this must have been unbelievable uh, to be on this little ship going going through this. I mean, I can only imagine me being on a huge Navy ship, you know, in the Indian Ocean back in the 80s going through a typhoon with, you know, 60-degree rolls. Um, you know, everybody on general quarters locked down. Um, and yet these guys are bobbing around like a little cork. You know, I mean, literally passing ropes around it so it won't fly apart. I mean, it, it must have been just unbelievable. Um, I'd be interested to know how these ancient sailors held, held on. You know, in modern ships, like in Navy ships, they literally strap themselves into their bunks or their racks and pray for daylight. I, I, I'd, I'd like to know how the ancient navigators did that. Um so the word frapping, to frap a ship is to pass four or five turns of large cable-laid rope around the hull or the frame of the ship to support her in a great storm. Uh, so, so they frapped the ship. And then verse 18, And when being exceedingly tossed with a tempest, the next day they lightened the ship. And the third day we cast out with our own hands, in other words, we physically picked up the cargo, we picked up the tackling. Interesting, that word, that word, we picked up the tackling. Bam. Uh, that's referring to the furniture. <laughs> I mean, they're, they're starting to pitch everything over. Uh, they're starting to pitch, pitch anything over that's a weight that can keep this thing buoyant so it wouldn't sink. And there's no doubt they were already starting to take on water. Um, they started throwing the tackling over, and when neither the sun nor the stars in many days appeared, again, because of the storm, and no small tempest lay on us, in other words, we were pounded, is what he's referring to there. Um, when he says there, no small tempest, you know, I mean, it means to pour uh, to the base uh, a storm, by implication, the rainy season, a tempest, foul weather, uh, all hope that we should be saved was then taken away. So again, this is Luke's attention to detail, getting into the navigational terms, just like he gets into the medical terms. Um, and to lighten the ship, they started throwing everything overboard, and all hope of survival uh, was beginning to be lost. Again, I would have loved to have been a fly on the wall to see how Paul was responding to this. Um, 
you know, if he was steady Freddie, you know, just, uh, you know, but I, I think he would respond to just like any believer would, uh, knowing that God had a plan for him and, you know, and if God wanted him to go to Rome, he'd go to Rome, you know. Um, and again, I've been there. I've done that. I've driven with my little wife and kitties um, across some pretty dangerous borders in, in uh, Central America. And, you know, I remember one time we were, uh, we were crossing the border of Honduras and Nicaragua. And what we would do is we would take our the, the windows on our vehicles and we would limo tint them. I mean, just get them as dark, as dark as we could. Uh, of course, the reason was to keep that hot Central American sun from beating down on you, but also to prevent people from seeing the occupants inside the vehicle. Uh, of course, in the United States, that's illegal. Uh, but... Uh, but for us specifically, it's so they would, would not see the white guy uh, driving the car with the two white kids in the back seat. <laughs> because immediately, once, once they ascertained that it was a gringo, um, the cost of anything just skyrocketed. You know, what was going to be, you know, 20 pesos is now $100, you know, because you know, those Americans, you know, they have all the money. Uh, so what we would do is we'd pull up to the border. And this particular time we pulled up to the border. And of course, you this was the type of border that had a chain across it. <laughs> so there wasn't guys standing out there. Um, so you had to take your passports, go inside, pay the fees, whatever they were, get them stamped, and then they would unhook the chain so you could cross over the border. Well, while Janet's inside, of course, as soon as she opens the passports, they see this white guy, which Janet says, I'm so white that I am the benchmark for whites. Um, immediately, a commotion began to take effect, and Janet comes running out of the, the building, and she's yelling at me, drive, drive, drive. Um, so I'm literally starting to move the car forward. Uh, Janet jumps in, slams the door, lock them all. And as I'm making my way toward the chain, which they were beginning to open, um, people started to jump on our car, literally jump on it. There were people on the back bumper. There were people on the hood and there were people on the sides trying to open the doors so it wasn't necessarily the authorities, but when the people that were there realized that we were Americans, um, you know, they wanted to rob us. <laughs> and if I remember correctly, what happened was I didn't start moving forward. I couldn't get the car started. That's what it was. The car would not start. And I just turned it, and it was dead, it was dead, it was dead. And, you know, we had an old Toyota Tercel that ran on a case of oil a month. I mean, it was like, there's no such thing as a junkyard down in Latin America, by the way. If it's running, if it's a car, it's running. And if it's not, it's scrapped. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that's what it is. I couldn't get it started. And people were starting to pile onto the vehicle. Janet reached under the steering console, the steering column, and ripped the plastic cover off of it 
and twisted the wires under the steering column. And she said, do it. And immediately my first thought was for her safety. She said, do it. But I turned it and the car turned over. That's what it was. And then we just started rolling out and people started coming off of the vehicle as we made our way to the border. (laughs) So was I a little bit apprehensive there? Yeah, 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 I was. was, It was a little tense. Um, But again, I, I think that you know, I look back on it now, uh, I didn't panic. Certainly my wife didn't panic, and my little kids were clueless. You know, they were drooling in the back seat. But there is no better place to be than in the will of God. Uh, it's that old saying, I don't know who said it. Maybe you guys can look this up. You are immortal until God is through with you. Um, and and I, I just kind of moved in that. I moved in the fact that I was where God wanted to be, me to be. And I'm sure that Paul, at this point, was moved by the fact that he was where he was supposed to be. And God told him he'd get in Rome, didn't tell him how he'd get him there. Um, but he said he would get him to Rome. And then notice verse 21, but after a long abstinence, and that's speaking of their food, Paul stood forth in the midst of them and says, we, you should have hearkened unto me. So, you know, hey. Uh, I told you so. <laughs> you know, um, I guess uh, Christians were not above saying we were right. It's almost like this election. Um, I tell you, man, I was sitting with my wife, and it was on Tuesday night, election night. And I don't remember when it was, probably around midnight. Maybe you guys might remember too. But all of these states decided to stop counting votes and to resume later. And at that point, that map was turning. It was bleeding all over the place. It was red. Uh, MSNBC, NBC, I love to flip back and forth to those guys. Uh, CNN, they were starting to backstep. You know, they were starting, ooh, well, ooh, Trump's taking another one. Ooh, Trump's taking another one. And I looked at my wife and I said, mark my words. When they start counting them votes again, Trump's lead will start to diminish. And sure enough, (laughs) I told you so. I knew it was going to happen. You'll never convince me, never in a million years, that uh, they haven't done something. Uh, That party threw God out a long time ago. It has become not only the party of the godless, it has become the party of the anti-God. So, but anyways, I told you so. (laughs) So he says, I exhort you to be of good cheer, for there shall be no loss of man's life among you but the ship. Why? Because there stood by me this night an angel of God, whose I am and whom I serve. I like that. Whose I am and whom I serve, saying, Fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given them thee all them that sail with thee. So they went without food. Paul uh, says, guys, you really need to to eat. Um, and again, some have presumed this to be a spiritual fast. Yeah, no. Um, they, If you've ever been on a ship uh, during bad weather, you don't eat. Uh, that's, that's, you know, what goes down comes up. Uh, you simply uh, do not eat uh, because you can't hold it down. And so apparently they they had a little bit of calm here. And uh, Paul says, you know what, we need to eat. Um, And again, I love that statement, uh, of whom I belong and of whom I 
serve. So obviously this was divine intervention, uh, this angel speaking to Paul. Now, many Mid-Acts teachers, of which I am solidly at this point, uh, will say that the fact that an angel is speaking to Paul is proof that the kingdom offer was still on the table. Uh, because all of these signs, wonders, miracles, manifestations were all a precursor to the offering of the kingdom. Jews demand a sign, uh, Greeks demand wisdom. All of this was given as, a, as proof that the kingdom was nigh. And of course, it was all rejected. But then after the kingdom offer was taken off of the table, um, these things disappeared. Uh, once the kingdom offer of the, was taken off the table, the marks of the kingdom, the tongues, the miracles, the raising the dead, the healing with handkerchief, handkerchiefs, the, the angelic manifestations. Um, and again, that is why, uh, like I've said before, mid-acts is not very palatable to charismatics. Um, cessationists, uh, which like are most Baptistic types, though you can find a wide array of heresy within the Baptist, trust me, but uh, most charismatics will are much more slow, and I and if you I know Scott's experienced it, uh, they are much slower to to agree with the mid acts position because of what I just said. Uh, because they they believe all these supernatural miracles accompanied by signs and wonders and tongues, interpretation of tongues, and, and all this stuff is for the church. Uh, and the mid-Acts position eliminates that possibility. Uh, so, you know, and again, I've, I've spent my whole ministry, uh, and I've been in... Uh, both, you know, Baptistic churches, which Baptists don't really have a, even like Southern Baptists, uh, independents more so, but Southern Baptists really don't take a stand on this issue as much. Uh, fundamentalists, independent fundamentalists, they do, trust me, they will say that any of these things is demonic, you know, speaking in tongues, all that stuff is demonic because they are cessationist. Um, but, uh, but I've also served in churches that, or charismatic, i.e. Calvary chapels. Um, but in all the years, and I think I was talking to Scott or someone about this the other day, that I was in that movement, I never once, never once saw what I believe to be a true sign gift. Never once. I mean, you know, I sat alone in the darkness, and I listened to people stand up and quote Scripture, I sat alone in the darkness with guys and heard people, you know, bought a Nishan, should have bought a Honda, but no interpretation. Uh, you know, I just, I never once. So I, I spent a lot of my time just kind of waffling between this cessationist um, theology and this uh, continualist theology over the gifts of the Holy Spirit. Well, Mid-Acts really drops the hammer on that. Um, if the Mid-Acts interpretation is all of that had everything to do with the nation of Israel and absolutely nothing to do with the body of Christ because the body of Christ wasn't born on Pentecost when all those things manifested. And, as, and historically speaking, I mean, just historically speaking, 
after the disciples were gone for thousands of years. <laughs> those were never the manifestation of tongues and all those things until the Second Great Awakening. So, so for all that time, uh, it was never there until that Second Great Awakening, which was much more of a touchy-feely awakening that happened in the United States and around the world, while the First Great Awakening was much more back to God, the Scripture, uh, the Second Great awaken, Awakening was the birth of Pentecostalism. Um, so you're telling me that the church went without all of that? Oh, but this is the latter days that's prophesied in Joel 2.28. Well, again, you're back to Acts chapter number 2, and you're dealing with the nation of Israel. So those latter days is, you know, was when... Pentecost happened, you know, uh, and the kingdom offer was still in the again when you when you take the mid acts position, the fuzzy lines begin to disappear, you know, and you know some people like fuzziness, um, so anyway, um, then I I guess I've got some more thoughts on this verse. Uh, of course, the message of the angels, fear not, Paul, thou must be brought before Caesar, and lo, God hath given thee all them that sail with thee. So apparently it's very important that God that God allow Paul to get to, to take the message to Rome. And then I ask the question, why? You know, why was it such a big deal for Paul to get to Rome? Um I I'm I'm coming to believe that Paul fulfilled the Great Commission. Um why? Because Paul was teaching two gospels. He was teaching. He was still teaching a kingdom gospel. He was still teaching a grace gospel. Uniquely, Paul. The, the apostles were not doing this. Maybe some of those that followed Paul, Aristarchus, you know, people like that, maybe. Uh, but you remember the Great Commission was... Um, Go ye therefore, teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Now, again, this is Jesus speaking to the Twelve, who, by the way, were Jewish, <laughs> teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I commanded you. So, again, I mean, he's saying you got to baptize these people, and these people need to do to keep the commandments of what I've said. Um, I don't believe that commission was to the body of Christ. That commission was to the nation of Israel, specifically to the apostles. And they refused to do it, so God used Paul to do it. And he ultimately did it once he ended up before Caesar. Um, Acts 1.8, a continuation of the Great Commission, but you receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and ye shall be witnesses unto me. Where? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the uttermost parts of the earth. Well, the entire known world was the Roman Empire at that point. Uh, so they wasn't trying to get to Virginia Okay, the entire known world was Rome. Rome was the uttermost. Did God use Paul to fulfill this? Well, when we get to the end of Acts chapter number 28, it says, And Paul dwelt two whole years in his own hired house and received all that came unto him, preaching the kingdom of God and teaching those things which concern the Lord Jesus Christ with all confidence, no man forbidding him. So, 
I'm beginning, and you guys can question me on this, and trust me, I'll, I'll change my mind live on the internet. <laughs> um, it just it appears that Paul, God used Paul to take the kingdom gospel uh, all the way to Rome. Uh, he preached both um, as his final verses of the book of Acts. But eventually, Paul completely turned away from the kingdom gospel because he realized God revealed through a series of revelations that the kingdom offer was no longer on the table. The kingdom had been postponed. He starts talking about the rapture. Um, verse number 25, Wherefore, sirs, be of good cheer, for I believe that God, that I believe God, that it, I believe, for I believe God, that it shall be even as it was told me, howbeit we must be cast upon a certain island. So, Paul's encouragement here, uh, we're not given any details why the angel told Paul they need to be on this certain island. Uh, maybe God knew that the people on that island needed Paul's ministry. We do know that Paul is going to end up healing Publius's father, who had apparently already been sick with the fever in Acts 28.8. But when the 14th night was come, as we were driven up and down the Adria, about midnight the shipmen deemed that we, they drew near to some country and sounded and found that we were 20 fathoms. And when they had gone a little further, they sounded again and found that we were 15 fathoms. And fearing lest we should be fallen upon the rocks, they cast four anchors out of the stern and prayed for daylight. <laughs> okay, so the 14th night, that means they've been in the storm for 14 days. Uh, so they sounded, which means they threw a line with a weight on it down until it hit the bottom and determined that they were losing ground, that they were approaching land. Uh, of course, today we use sonar, but they were within 90 to 120 feet of shore, so they knew it was coming. The problem is they had no control over it. And as the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, when they had let down the boat into the sea under color as though they would have cast anchors out of the foreship, now, what that literally means, that word color there in verse number 30 um, means to feign or to, to pretend. Uh, verse number 30, it says, and when to color, um, it means an outward showing, a pretext, a pretense, a cloak. In other words, the sailors were doing something that they didn't want the others to know. Uh, so they pretended to throw out these anchors. And Paul said to the centurion and to the soldiers, except these abide in the ship, you cannot be saved. And then the soldiers cut, cut the ropes from the boat and let her fall. So again, Paul used, God used Paul. And he said, listen, if you don't stay on this boat, all of you are going to, you're not going to survive it. And apparently God had given favor to Paul. Because they believed it. And what did they do? They cut the ropes of the boat and they let it fall off. Now, when it says here, they cut, then they, the soldiers cut the ropes of the boat and let her fall off, uh, that literally means that they, they dropped the lifeboat. Um, but they're listening to Paul, they're not going to flee the ship. Uh, and then just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. 
And again, he says, for 14 days, you've been constant suspense. You've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything. Now, I urge you, take some food. You need it to survive. Not one of you will survive. will lose a single hair from his head. And after he said this, he took the bread, he gave thanks in front of them all, um, and then he broke it and began to eat. And they were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. And when they'd eaten as much as they wanted, they lighted the ship, throwing the grain into the sea. So again, Paul seems to be in charge at this point. He encourages them, take something to eat. Um, this is about to be over. You're going to need your strength. We don't know what's on this island. Um, very interesting that he gives credit to everything that's happening to God. Also very interesting that he, he breaks bread and he gives thanks to God in front of them all. Um, again, this is where I think we get the habit of blessing, thanking God for our food before each meal. And when it was day, they knew not the land. Uh, in other words, they didn't see it. But they discovered a certain creek with a shore, into the which they were minded if it were possible to thrust the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves into the sea and loosed the rudder bands and hoisted the mainsail to the wind and made toward shore. Now notice it says they, they took up the anchors. Uh, let's see, back here... Um, where did they threw the ship? Caesar, fourth night, they sounded. Shipmen were about to flee. There it is. See, remember we said this, and the shipmen were about to flee out of the ship, and when they had let down the boat into the sea under pretext, under pretense, as though they would have cast the anchors out of the foreship. So they didn't cut them back there. They cut the ship loose. Uh, is what they cut. It's for there shall be no hair fall. Given thanks, you remember that's when they cut the uh, the uh, the boat loose. They didn't cut the anchors. Fourteenth day tarried. So here they have this in the sea. I think I'm reading that correct. If you guys see something else there, please uh, feel free. But if it were possible, they thrust the ship. And when they had taken up the anchors, they committed themselves to sea and loosed the rudder bands, hoist the mainsail to the wind, made toward the shore, and falling into a place where two seas met, they ran the ship aground, and the fore part struck fast and remained unmovable, but the hinder part was broken with the violence of the waves. So they were looking for land when they saw what appeared to be a bay with a beach, and they decided to go for it. So they pulled up the anchors, now, other translations say they cut the anchors, which at this point, who needs them anyway? We're getting ready to be bashed on the rocks. And the King James puts it in italics, which is one of the beauties of the King James translation, is the interpreters know, let you know when they're adding something for detail. Of course, we've lost that today. Of course, <clears throat> most of the new translations would have to be completely italicized. They loosed and lowered the rudders back down into the water. They raised up the mainsail and aimed for the shore. Remember, earlier, they, they let go of the wheel. Now they're taking back control of the wheel. And finally, they ram the ship ashore. The hinder part of the ship is still being beaten, battered by the waves. And the soldiers' counsel was to kill the prisoners, lest all of them should swim out and escape. <clears throat> Why was that such a big deal? Because if they escaped, it was life for life. 
You remember the ones that let let Peter and them escape? They paid with their lives. Uh, the only ones that didn't pay with their lives were the ones that let Jesus escape because they paid them a huge sum of money to lie, um, which is one of the proofs of the resurrection because the Romans didn't play that. Uh, they killed you. It was life for life. And that's why these soldiers are thinking this way. Uh, but the centurion, obviously the one that's in charge, wanted to save Paul. So obviously he had, he had developed a fondness for Paul, kept them from their purpose, and commanded that they could swim, that those who could swim should cast themselves first into the sea and get to the land. And the rest, some on board, some on broken pieces of the ship, and so it came to pass they all escaped safely to the land. So God showed Daniel favor, uh, and they escaped, and they made it to the land. Um, you know, that favor reminds me of what God showed Daniel at the hands of Melzar. You remember Melzar was the one that was responsible for fattening them up and getting them prepared to go into the king's court. And they had chose these young Jewish men of noble birth um, who were supposed to be the smartest um, and probably were because they were the only, they were the most educated uh, and he approached Melzar and said, please, we don't want to eat the king's meat. But again, because it had been sacrificed to idols, Old Testament. And uh, Melzar gave them permission for 10 days to eat a vegetarian diet instead of eating the king's meat. And you'll remember, of course, uh, he and his three friends uh, appeared even more healthy than the ones that had eaten the meat because of that. So um, God in the end, miraculously delivers all souls on board. So that is chapter number 27. Um, so, man, this has been a good ride. I, I, you know, I can't wait to get over into Galatians because once you figure out that Acts is a transitional book and you figure out what God is really doing with the nation of Israel and what God is doing with Paul, that the kingdom offer is slowly being retracted, it makes all the difference in the world when you read the rest of the New Testament. You begin to understand that there is a distinction. It is distinct. It is hard-lined between the nation of Israel and the Gentile, the body of Christ. Um, it, it changes everything. I mean, so many assumptions are removed. So many preconceived notions, the filters are released. Uh, and I love getting into conversations with people and I start asking them questions like, and again, this is how my whole journey started. I'm, I'm going to tell you what it is. I was sitting at a senior pastor's conference in Maryland with a friend of mine. And there were other pastors around him. And I was already starting to go down this road just a little bit. And I asked them, I said, what would have happened if the nation of Israel would have repented at the preaching of Paul? What would have happened? It went quiet. And the obvious answer was, he would have given them the kingdom. And I said, yeah, he would have given them the kingdom. And then I asked, 
you know, again, just linear thinking here. What about the tribulation? Would the, would the tribulation have happened before the kingdom came in? Before the second coming? And the answer was, yes, it, they would have went to the tribulation. And then in my mind, I started thinking, first, second Peter, first, second, third John, Jude, Revelation, all of that was written to the nation of Israel to prepare them for the tribulation should they have repented, even under the assumption that they would eventually repent. That got the wheels going, and that is what took me to where I am today. A uh, lot of good mid-Acts Bible teachers that I enjoy. Um, as a result of that, I thought I was alone. Uh, the first one I found, uh, believe it or not, was uh, a little preacher in South Carolina named Benny Carper. Ben Carper, he's on YouTube. Um, and uh, then I was led to Les Feldick. Uh, then I was led to several, Randy White. And I began to realize, you know what? I'm not venturing out into heresy here. <laughs> uh, then I started looking back at classical dispensationalism. Uh, I started looking at even notes that C.I. Schofield made, comments that J. J. Vernon McGee made. Um, you know, I mean, this it's 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 not a radical. Uh, once that filter is taken off, there's no going back. There's no going back. So um, I have yet to reach the point where I think I've gone too far. I have yet to reach the I've reached the point now where when I read something and it doesn't make sense, I assume that I just don't understand it in the context uh, that it was spoken or it was done. That's that's the point I've reached. Uh, so I'm just getting deeper and deeper and deeper. <laughs> <laughs> Sounds like some of you guys are too. So anyway, it's been a pleasure to be with you guys this Sunday morning. I hope you have an awesome Lord's Day. Next week is going to be kind of crazy for me. I'll probably be able to be on uh, Tuesday morning uh, when we get into cha chapter 28, uh, but then probably Wednesday, Thursday morning. It may be audio. I'll probably be on the road up in Ohio, um, but then I'll be back in Friday, and we'll just keep going until we finish the book of Acts. And then I'm really thinking about going into the book of Galatians uh, next so uh, because it totally changes what Paul was saying when he starts talking about how have you begun in the Spirit and you want to, want to complete it in the flesh. This is no gospel at all. What was going on there? A mixture of two gospels. So uh, we'll talk about that later. God bless you guys. Hope you have a great day. I'll see you later.